My name is Jagadish Gokhale. Good afternoon to all of you, and I welcome all of you to this two-part conference on state and local pensions. I will say a few remarks to get the topic off and then introduce the speakers for the first panel. And the second panel will begin right after the first one concludes, uh, maybe a minute or two to change the setup. I know that we are in the midst of a federal government funding crisis, but that's no reason to tune off on many other important policy issues. And state and local budgets are also under tremendous pressure, fiscal pressure, especially uh, because of uh, underfunding on their pension plans. Detroit's move to declare bankruptcy has placed state and local budget and pension funding problems back on the media front burner. Uh, and although a shift from DB to DC plans has been progressing in the private sector for more than three decades now, the overwhelming majority of state and local employees are still covered under defined benefit pensions, uh, many of which are now severely underfunded. As everybody here probably knows, defined benefit plans are traditional pension plans that provide a formula-based benefit, retirement and other benefits, taking into account a worker's final average earnings, age, tenure, and so on. In contrast, under DC plans or defined contribution plans, benefits are based on workers' and employers' contributions to an individual investment account. DC plans or defined contribution plans are by definition and by construction fully funded. But defined benefit plans funding aspects are very complex and they're affected by many factors such as changes in beneficiary characteristics, especially their longevity, pension accrual rates from employee services, changes in asset market conditions, uh, employer funding behavior, and accounting and liability measurement standards, and so on. Uh, some state and local entities in attempts to re reform their pension plans have also started to uh, adopt hybrid plans, but we'll talk more about those as the conference continues. We know now, we've known about underfunding of defined benefit state and local employee pension plans for a while now, those plans for state employees, firefighters, police, and teachers, and judges, and so on, were in much better shape before the recession. But poor funding and management problems have resulted in massive underfunding, with estimates across all states ranging from $900 billion under traditional accounting methods to several trillions of dollars under methods that economists especially think are more appropriate. This degree of underfunding of state and local pension plans seriously jeopardizes state and local retirees' living standards and or escalates taxpayer burdens as states try to reduce their pension, under, uh, pension funding shortfalls. So this conference will address two key issues. One, a very specific issue. So in light of the severe underfunding, should the federal government step in to regulate or constrain state local policymakers' choices with regard to funding and operating state employee pension plans. And the second issue, which is a more global or overview of 30,000 feet view, is what are the pitfalls of the existing state local pension funding structures, and how should state and local plans be restructured? We'll come to that in the second conference. But this is kind of an unconventional issue for us at Cato, a question of federal involvement in 
the institutional design of state and local pensions, but I think it deserves a discussion. The significant underfunding of state and local pensions, which on average are under the appropriate economist metric, are only 50% funded, pose the potential for a systemic implosion of state and local pension plans, and thus the potential to increase political pressure for a federal bailout. I should note in this context that state and local government pension plans, unlike private sector plans, are not subject to regulation by, federal, by the federal government under the ERISA, or Employee Retirement and Income Security Act of 1974. State and local plans are also subject to less stringent federal tax rules than our private pension plans. Instead, state and local pension plans are created by the government, uh, created and governed by state and local laws, which often have less stringent funding investing in other rules. So the first panel will discuss this issue in the context of a reform proposal by Senator Orrin Hatch, who's a ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, this, is, this approach is called the Secure Annuities for Employee Retirement or SAFE Solution. This approach aims to reduce funding uncertainty for employers and to provide a guaranteed retirement income uh, for employees. So let me introduce the speakers for the first panel. Our first speaker is Mr. Preston Rutledge, who will discuss the SAFE approach proposed by Senator Hatch. Mr. Rutledge is Tax and Benefits Counsel for the State uh, uh, Senate Committee on Finance. He focuses on employee, employee benefits, employment taxation, and tax-exempt organizations. Prior to joining the Finance Committee, Mr. Rutledge worked for the Internal Revenue Service and for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Mr. Rutledge was an officer of the U.S. Navy before attending law school. He has a Master of Laws in Taxation from Georgetown University Law Center and earned his Juris Doctorate from the George Washington University School of Law. Comments and discussion of Mr. Routledge's presentation and the safe reform approach will be provided by Professor Robert Clark. Robert Clark is a Zelnak Professor of Economics and Professor of Management, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship at the Poole College of Management, North Carolina State University. He's also a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. His work focuses on retirement decisions, DB versus DC plan choices, the role of information and communication on 401k contributions, government regulation of pensions and social security, and the influence of retirement planning and financial literacy programs on retirement decisions. Professor Clark has written several books on these topics. He earned his BA from Millsaps College and an MA and PhD in economics from Duke University. So I invite Mr. Rutledge to take the podium. Well, thank you. Actually, if I could, I'll, I think I'll stay seated for just a moment until the until the um, um, slides are up, and then I'm going to stand and, and I can point. help you. Is it okay? Okay. Here. Oh, there they are. There they are. Before I address the plan, and, and, and ignore the slide behind me for the moment, if you can. Um, thank you. I, I want to say, um, first off, I have to make a qualification if you've ever um, attended one of these meetings in Washington, D.C. I'm a member of the staff of the Senate Finance Committee, Republican tax staff. Um, and Senator Hatch is my boss, but I don't, I'm not here officially speaking for Senator Hatch or for the committee or any other senator. So my comments today are my own comments, my views. I'm a, I'm a, but I am a professional staffer, of, I'm a pension lawyer, and I'm going to give you my views of, of, of the legislative proposal and try to explain what we're trying to accomplish with the legislative proposal for state and local pension plans. But I do want to say first, why are we 
I want to answer the question of why are we legislating in this area? It's a very good, very good question, and it comes up a lot. Why, what's, what business is it of Congress to tell state and local governments what to do with their state and local plans for their own employees? There's a number of reasons. I'll run through them quickly because I do want to spend all of, as much time as possible explaining how the plan was designed, uh, how the legislation is designed to work. First, um, public pension plan underfunding uh, is debt, and public pension plan underfunding is, is Congress's business because it affects the credit rating of the U.S. government, and the, US, and the credit rating of the U.S. government is you know, Congress's business. In 2000, and we're coming up on, the, on another moment here of, of, of debt limit debate and uh, potential credit downgrades and all of the, all, the, all the stories. We've lived through this before. We all, we all remember 2011 when S&P downgraded the United States. What a lot of folks may not be aware of if you don't dig into these sort of things on a regular basis is that in 2011, when S&P downgraded the long-term sovereign credit rating of the United States, public sector defined benefit pension systems were included in a list of what they call fiscal score key indicators that are part of the overall method by which they measure net general government debt. So public pension plans at the state and local level are public debt, and that public debt affects the U.S. credit rating agent, um, um, levels. There's a number of other reasons. When, when public pension plans uh, become underfunded and come under stress, we have the potential for increased federal spending. A couple of key ways, obviously, the bailouts that's already been mentioned, um, uh, potential bailouts. Now, that potential is already starting to be realized, perhaps, in Detroit, where just this week the administration has announced that they're going to Detroit with, they've come up with 300 or so million dollars from various existing programs, some of which are leftover unspent funds from TARP, to help Detroit. Um, so the notion that there will be no federal bailout is, is I mean, you can take that position and, and dig, a, dig in your heels, but um, it, it's, it's not at all certain there won't be a federal bailout if there's a real human tragedy at some point. Um, another potential is the potential increased spending on federal poverty programs. When pensions run out, poverty goes up, federal spending on poverty. Uh, pension debt harms the national economy. And there's one last sort of geeky position, geeky point to make, the Senate Finance Committee, which is the, one of the two tax writing committees in Congress, does have an obligation to monitor and legislate with respect to items that create what we call tax expenditures, uh, items in the code that, um, that, that reduce uh, general revenues. The tax expenditure, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation, related to defined benefit plans overall, is $212 billion. Um, many defined benefit plans are in the public sector, obviously. In fact, they're more prominent there than they are in the private sector. The tax expenditure calculations are, are somewhat different between the two, and there's no breakout as to how much of that $212 billion is related to state and local plans and their participants, but it's, it's obviously a portion. That's an important job. Um, just to give you a brief comparison, $212 billion is not a small number. It's not the largest tax expenditure, but it's not small. The, the, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act premium subsidies, the tax expenditure related to those is $237 billion. They're almost the same. And there's no doubt that we have an obligation to, in the Senate Finance Committee to pay attention to um, premium subsidies, tax subsidies, what have you. So the reasons, I think, are clear. 
So I'd like to spend as much time as I can, I'm going to stand up if I can, um, discussing how the plan is designed to work, how the Safe Retirement Act is designed to work. The Safe Retirement Act creates what is des expect designed to be a new type of defined benefit plan for state and local governments that would um, allow state and local governments to replace their existing defined benefit plans with another plan that delivers lifetime income for workers. There are a lot of folks who've proposed closing defined benefit plans and setting up 401k type plans. Or, um, that's always an option. In fact, that's an option that the emergency manager in Detroit has publicly announced he intends to propose already. Um, and, and that, the problem with that politically is you get into the classic debate, and I'll point to the employer here, you have the employer who, who sponsors the plan, and if it's a defined benefit plan, all the, all the risk of investment loss, of course, is on the employer. If the, the employee in a defined contribution 401k type plan, all the investment risk is on the employee. And for decades, we've had this battle, you know, should the investment risk be on the employee? Should it be on the employer? Uh, it's sort of a it's sort of a long-running battle, um, unions versus management, Democrats versus Republicans, employers versus employees. There is another possibility, and this annuity plan, and that's what the Safe Retirement Act plan really would be, is an annuity plan. In an annuity plan, all of the risk of, of investment loss is on the insurance industry. And when I say insurance industry, I mean the life insurance companies, represented here by the, the I, the insurance regulators, and the state guarantee associations. So with that predicate, uh, the idea is we're truly, we're truly trying to find a solution that works for, that solves the needs of every party. The needs of employers, public employers, is to be able to put some money aside every year, whatever they can budget for, whatever percent of payroll they believe they can budget for, put that aside, and then not have to worry about ever having to revisit that that funding, that year of, of, of benefit accruals and have to fund for it again in the future if something happens in the markets 20 years, 10 years down the road. On the other hand, the employee receives lifetime income. Um, that has always been the bugaboo when you get to the end of meetings with folks about what's, what can we do to the 401k plan to make it acceptable as your primary pension plan. The answer is always, you can't do anything with it because, um, it doesn't provide lifetime income, and that's true. So what does provide lifetime income? Annuity contracts provide lifetime income. Uh, one of the great obstacles to annuity contracts, as you all know, if, you're trying, if you've ever decide, thought about buying one for yourself, is the interest rate environment. When interest rates are low, the payouts are not very high, and they're not very attractive. Hence, the design of the safe retirement plan. The concept is the employer every year has a certain amount of money, a certain amount of money that is being dedicated to their defined benefit pension system. In many states, it's, in Utah, I'll take Utah for example. In Utah, they devote 16% of payroll, an amount equal to 15% of payroll, no employee money. But they take total payroll, an amount equal to 16% of payroll is devoted to the pension plan overall. The concept would be, instead of the employer taking a, whatever percent of payroll the state decides is appropriate, instead of putting that money every year into a defined benefit pension trust, which is what they do now when they fund, that money instead would be paid to an insurance company. 
Which insurance company? It would be an insurance company that had joined in several other insurance companies in bidding on providing individual annuity contracts, deferred fixed income annuity contracts, to each and every employee that works for the employer. Um, the concept is, if you walk into an insurance company today as a single person, just an individual, you're gonna, and you can buy a contract, you can buy, buy a deferred fixed income annuity contract at virtually any age that commences payment at retirement, age 65, for example. But you'll be, you'll, you, the price you'll pay will be based on what's known as the, the single person mortality table. That the price won't be necessarily uh, that attractive. Group, groups, however, get much better pricing. So if we could, the idea is you, you bring a whole group, a whole employee group, to the table, you'll get group bidding prices, you get better prices, and then the real trick is, you do it each and every year throughout the worker's life. What that does is, is it smooths out interest rate variations. If there's a year when interest rates are low, okay, there will be years when interest rates are low, but there will also be years when interest rates are high, higher. Um, we've done modeling, which I'll show you on the next slide, that if you take today's interest rates, and if you just assume that interest rates go back to the historic median, and by the historic median I mean without cherry picking any given year, you go back to 1871 to 2013, you just take the historic median of interest rates over that period. If you assume that over the next 40 or 42 years of a worker, of a person's working life, rates would, res, would, would ultimately res, re, re, uh, on average, go back to the historic median, or the, I didn't even take the historic mean, I took the historic median a little bit lower, you can produce very, very solid pensions, as I'll show you in a moment. What, the, what we call this is an annuity accumulation plan. As you accumulate these annuities year by year, you build up a very strong, a very strong pension. Couple of features about this. The employer can decide, we're gonna devote X amount of payroll to pensions. And, they're like, and that's, that's up to the employer. If, if investments go up, investments go down, it's not their concern. They can just decide what they're gonna to devote to it and devote to it. It's a consumption decision from the employer perspective. How much can we afford? The employee will see as they're going through their working life what they're building in their pension. They'll see what they have. Um, and when they get to the end of their working life, they'll have an annuity that will, that will pay them a monthly salary for the rest of their life, no matter how long they live. That's the income security aspect. If any of the carriers that have provided annuities in this model were to go insolvent at some point, what would happen? What happens under current law is the State Guarantee Association comes in and makes sure that everybody that has a life, that has an annuity contract, which is a form of life insurance, everybody is paid um, their benefits. At what rate are they paid their benefits? Well, the track record is, the track record, and this includes large, this, is, this includes even large failures like Executive Life in the 1990s. The track record is when an annuity customer, when a policyholder, and that's what retirees will be, they'll be policyholders. When a policyholder's policy is fully covered by the Guarantee Association, the track record is they receive 100 cents on the dollar. Pretty good track record. Keeping in mind that today, in a defined benefit plan at the state and local level, there is no backstop. There is no Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. If you know what the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is, the PBGC, they insure defined benefit plans of businesses. 
premiums are paid by the businesses. If the, if the plan, uh, if, the, if the employer becomes bankrupt and there's not enough money in the plan, the PBGC backs it up. That doesn't exist at the state and local level. So the Guarantee Association backstop is a complete um, extra added value, if, if you might. So what kind of pensions can you develop? If I could just click forward to the next slide. I only have two slides. I'm not a, a slide monster. Uh, I ran proje projections for non-public safety workers and public safety workers. They tend, I understand, as, as, as I've worked on this project, I've learned that they have very kind of, they have different approaches to work and retirement. Uh, I, I took as a model a person that goes to work at age 25 non-public safety at 25,000 a year, receive a 2% annual wage increase, they work for 42 years till age 67. Their final salary at age 67, 56,305, and I ran projections on what kind of pension they would have if they got an annuity contract every year, assuming that the interest rates were just returned over time, over 42 years, to the historic median. If the employer is devoting 10% of payroll, the replacement would be 66%. If the employer is devoting 15% of payroll, it would be 99%. Now, a couple of things. If you're in a state where the state and local government is participating in Social Security, this person's already going to be getting approximately 40% income replacement from Social Security. A state could devote only, say, 5% to this structure in a state like that, 40% plus 33%, suddenly you're talking about a very solid 75 to 80% income replacement rate in a very financially sound structure with, with not the kind of underfunding legacy liability risk to taxpayers we see right now. If you're in a state that does not participate in Social Security for its employees, and 25% of, of state and local workers are not in Social Security, well, that's 12.4% of payroll that is not being devoted to, to, uh, to the federal government. When I'm adding, I'm adding the employee and the employer together there. You can go to, you can go to one of these models, 10%, somewhere in between, 15%. That's a solid pension. I don't know how you can say 99% of final pay is, 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 is not a solid pension. It's better than most defined benefit plans deliver and probably better than they should deliver. Public safety, police, fire, folks like that. They start working younger, they quit, they, they retire younger because it's difficult. In our model, we used age 57. In the real world, I'm not sure that might be a little high. None of these, none of these things are written in stone. These are just models to give you a concept of what, what could occur. But if you took a public safety worker that began working at 20, age 20, the same initial salary, same annual raises, they work till 57, you'll notice there's a 20% here and a 25 instead of 10 and 15. As you look around state and local governments throughout the country, one of the things you'll notice is for police and fire, for public safety workers, they devote much more money to the defined benefit plan. 20 to 25% of payroll is very common. In fact, it's a little on the low side. Even in Utah, the, public, the police departments uh, devote between 25 and well up into the 30s, 30% 30 and more of payroll is devoted to the defined benefit structure. So I ran modeling based on 20% of payroll and 25% of payroll and came up again with very solid income replacements. 
Um, so we set out to do a couple of things. Um, Senator Hatch asked me to see if there's a way we could find a way to redesign defined benefit plans that wouldn't result in um, legacy liabilities, um, unfunded pension plans, the kinds of things that drove Central Falls, Rhode Island into bankruptcy that are driving Detroit, Stockton, California, San Bernardino, California, all of these, all these cities, and God forbid one day a state. What can we do to stop that? Um, the other thing we, we wanted to do was to continue, if we could, to deliver lifetime income. Uh, why? Longevity is why. There's a lot of focus on interest rates. There's a lot of focus on investments. But the truth about a true pension is it's really not it's really, it, it is insurance. It's insurance, about out, it's insurance against outliving your money. It's the longevity risk. That's why we believe, uh, I'll go back to the, I won't go back to the other slide, but the life insurance industry is the logical place to go if what you're really trying to deal with is longevity risk, longevity insurance. Because the life insurance industry sells products on both sides of that risk. They sell life insurance and they sell life annuities. No defined benefit plan does that or can do that. You're really exposed to increases in lifespan when the only thing you provide people with are annuities. And that's what defined benefit plans do. It's not a knock on defined benefit plans. It's just a fact. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very um, uh, difficult, difficult financial problem to manage, longevity risk, when the only thing you provide is a life annuity that pays out for as long as people live. And longevity is getting, um, is driving defined benefit plans, and I believe it has driven defined benefit plans out of existence in the private sector. Um, probably would have already done so in the public sector if there was a little more transparency and people understood it better. So that was the bottom, that's the, uh, that's the concept, that's the, uh, the basic attempt, um, the basic thing we're trying to accomplish with the bill is to come up with a new alternative state and local governments can consider State and local governments can, can think about, debate, talk about, and if they think it would work for them, they could adopt. Um, and the last thing I'll say is there's no mandate in the bill. There's nothing in the bill that says they have to close down their existing defined benefit plans and adopt this. Um, we introduced it uh, to bring a new kind of structure to the table um, for, for state and local governments to consider. Thank you. Uh, first, I'd say I, I've, I've read some of the background materials, but I haven't seen any of the simulations uh, that you've done. So I, I'll make a few comments later on about them, uh, but from a point of ignorance, not, not having repeated them in any particular way. Um, so I, I just t my title there was uh, to save, save the day. And so the question is really, you know, what's the principal uh, problem facing public sector pensions today, and how would this bill affect them. Um, and so what I'd like to start with is just thinking about what do we know about public sector pension plans? Some have already been mentioned. Low funding ratios, in other words, uh, high uh, rates of actuarially accrued liabilities relative to the assets in the plans. Uh, we know that this funding ratio and the possibility of default is getting a lot of the press. 
however, equally important is the annual expenditures and the annual required contributions, which are stress points if you're making your state budget. Um, and we know that uh, most state and local governments haven't been putting in this actuarially required contribution, required only in the sense that that's what the actuary recommends that you put in, but nobody has to do it. Um, we know that over time, uh, a larger part of state budgets have been needed to support these plans, and that gets back to the stress point about you know what, what should we be uh, considering as we think about changes for the future. And then the final point is, can SAFE alter the public pension landscape in a way that would address these points? Uh, historically, uh, I've written a couple of books on the history of public sector pension plans going back actually to the time of the uh, revolution in the colonial days. Uh, there were public sector pension plans then. Uh, there's a Navy pension plan that's really interesting. I would encourage you to go look at my book on that. Uh, but then over time, uh, there's a long gap of public sector pension plans until we get uh, toward uh, the 20th century. And then over the course of the development of the 20th century, we see uh, movement through uh, states and local governments where Virtually all state full-time workers are covered by a pension plan. They're, they were historically almost all defined benefit plans. And there's a time period between about 1950 and 1970 up to the mid-80s where these plans have matured. They've spread across the country. And now state after state is making them more generous. And so we have these expansion of benefits without comparable expansion in uh, funding sources. Um, larger percentage of pay, lower retirement ages, on every dimension, the uh, benefit plans were increased. Uh, so then, what's happened recently? Times are really changing in the public sector, uh, partially due to the press that they're getting by the uh, unfunded uh, liabilities, partially due to these rising annual expenditures, even when they're not making uh, the payments that they should be. Uh, and so states and local governments have, have in some sense, tried to address these problems in a couple of different ways. Uh, while some states are continuing to offer defined benefit plans, they're fundamentally restructuring those plans, and a number of states are making changes in plan type. So we see if we look across the states, while the statement that was made earlier that, by and large, the, the extremely high percentage of public sector workers today are in defined benefit plans, that's because they are legacy members in that plan. But the world is changing. And even those that are still in defined benefit plans are going to be promised lower benefits in, in the future. And this is just a slide uh, based on the National Council of State Legislature, which shows that if we looked at this slide uh, 25 years ago, there'd be 50s at the top. And now you see only a third, uh, two thirds of the state plans for regular state employees now only have defined benefit plans. So really a fundamental shift in terms of mainly giving people more choice, whether it's a DC choice, whether it's a hybrid choice. Hybrid's a, a funny word in the public sector. It doesn't mean the same thing that we mean in the, in the private sector. When we say hybrids there, we're talking about cash balance plans. When they say hybrid in the public sector, they're talking about really combination plans where you have a lower DB and then a mandatory DC on top of that. <coughs> so really, that's a pretty big movement in the span of really about two decades. Those plans that remain, you see state after state making changes. And they're doing two things. One is they are substantially reducing the promise of benefits to the future. Higher normal retirement ages. 
uh, whether they are used to be maybe 30 years regardless of age. Now you see a number of states adding retirement ages at 67 or so in, in their benefit plans. Uh, more years of vesting is another common trend, which in defined benefit plans mean that fewer and fewer people get the benefits. Uh, defined benefit plans, one of their big problems that uh, this uh, proposal would address is that uh, defined benefit plans treat short-term workers very poorly uh, for lots of reasons. Um, in addition to that, reducing the generosity of the defined benefit plan, there's a cost shifting to workers where, uh, you know, while states often renege on the pension payments that they should make, they don't let their workers do that. Being a public sector worker, they always take the money out of my check, even if they're not putting in what they should be. So there's a cost shifting to workers, there's a reduction in benefits, and the future in the public sector is going to be lower benefits that people pay more for. What are the implications then that future public employees covered by defined benefit plans are going to pay more for lower benefits in the future? In a sense, what that's saying is maybe Senator Hatch was, if he had introduced that when he first came into the Senate, which was how many years ago? About 12 or 13 years ago, I believe. <laughs> anyway, if he had introduced it when he entered the Senate, that would have been a great bill and maybe have short-circuited this rise of unfunded liabilities. However, today the legacy costs are there, and as near as I can tell, there's nothing in this bill that addresses the legacy cost, which is the real problem with funding in today's public sector plans. Going forward, yes, it could happen all over again, but if you're promising lower benefits and you're making the workers pay more for it, that mitigates that possibility to some degree. In addition, this shift away from defined benefit plans in lots of states is going to mean that more and more workers are in defined contribution plans or in uh, these hybrid plans. And it's not that you can't have an annuity option in defined contribution plans. In fact, many co defined contribution plans allow for annuity options. I'm in a TIA-CREF plan, and I can annuitize my account through a group coverage rate. So those are possible. Most private sector plans don't have those options. Public sector pensions are different than private sector uh, plans. When we look at defined contribution plans in the public sector, they're not the 401k plans that you know. They're typically mandatory plans. They take the money out of our paycheck without any uh, decision by me. And so in my case, uh, you know, they take 6% out of my paycheck and the state puts in 6.82%. And they're somewhere in that 12% uh, that he was saying would, would provide a good income. Then you can also do something supplementary on top of that. But by and large, when the, it's the primary plan in the public sector, they require employee contributions. They require employer contributions. So it's not optional like the 401k plan. And the match doesn't depend on whether the, the individual contributes to that. So very different world there. And it seems to me that as we move more toward these plans, then Yes, this would be another option, but a lot is happening on the landscape anyway. It's not your public sector pension plans of 20 and 30 years ago. And again, just to, to come back to this, the, the real problem with public sector plans today are this overhang, whether it's $2 trillion or $3 trillion or $4 trillion, it's a lot of money. And that's what the states and local governments are having difficulty paying for now. And as you look forward, that that amount of money that's uh, shortfall is growing because of the legacy costs, not necessarily because they're not putting in enough money for the new accruals uh, of work that people are providing. 
So again, it's really the legacy cost and how we get out of that um, is, is a really a difficult problem, both for the state and the cities, and perhaps if it's going to be shifted to the federal government, then, then that would be a major issue there. Uh, again, I haven't read the, the, the uh, uh, bill or any of the analysis in detail. SAFE doesn't seem to address this legacy cost. That, if that's the big problem, that's something that we ought to consider. It certainly seems like a reasonable option relative to the others, but the states are already moving to some descent in, the, in that ma uh, manner. There are people, of course, who say that these reductions in benefits won't hold because once the economy recovers, I guess that's going to, is that next week? Uh, whenever the economy recovers, uh, then there's be pressure for perhaps take those benefit reductions back. And I'm not sure uh, what will happen there. Um, a couple of uh, final points here that I always make on these things. This is not just pensions. There's retiree health out there. And in the public sector, retiree health plans have uh, another trillion dollars of unfunded liability or maybe a trillion and a half of unfunded liabilities. Uh, you may think that states do a bad job of, of funding pension plans. They do a terrible job of funding retiree health plans. Of course, everybody does that. Uh, in a sense, there are almost no states that have any money in a fund for retiree health plans. My state, North Carolina, which does a, really an excellent job of managing its public pension plan, always listed among the top four or five states in the country, because the state legislature has always, except for one year out of since 1941, put in this annual required contribution. They've invested the money reasonably, and it's great. We have no money in a retiree health plan. So we've got a $30 billion unfunded liability on retiree health off of a state budget that's about $20 billion. Other states are very much the same in this case. So retiree health plans, don't forget about them because that could also be a fundamental crisis. It does seem that it's easier to sort of chisel away on health plans. Now, anybody that's had a health plan, your benefits are changing every year, it seems like. Mine do. They raise uh, deductibles. They uh, uh, increase co-payments. Everything goes up even though they're promising you access to these benefits. What seems to be sticky is whether or not retirees have to pay a premium for these plans. So just a, a point of thinking about public sector finance, don't forget about public employees. Bottom line that I say in lots of talks like this is that more and more people will have more and more responsibility for their own retirement income, and we better just get over it. Why? Public sector pensions are going to be lower in value. We're going to pay more for them. Someday, the Senate and the House will decide to do something about Social Security. I don't know what they'll do, but just count on benefits are going to come down and taxes are going to go up. So put those two things together, add in Medicare. Those of you younger folks out there, you're going to pay more in taxes, more to your uh, employer pension plan, and you're going to get less for both of those. So what are you going to do about all that? Which just says financial literacy is a really important thing here. Supplemental retirement savings plans we ought to think about. And most states offer employees not only this mandatory pension plan, but also a supplemental retirement plan. They don't make uh, matching contributions to those. They rarely use automatic uh, enrollment, perhaps some revision here. And if you've ever, who's ever looked at 403B plans? Who knows what a 403B plan is? It's the wild, wild kingdom of pension plans. And as near as I can tell, there's very little information about how these plans are managed across the country. In many states, they are managed at the school district level, and they let anybody that wants to be part of this, Joe's Insurance Company or whoever, didn't mean to slam Joe there, uh, can participate in these plans. And so workers are confronted with first, 
perhaps having to choose from 10 to 15 to 20 different vendors, not to mention thousands of investment options. And if you know anything about financial literacy and being faced with a menu that you can't understand, inertia can keep you out of that market altogether. So final point would be, don't forget about retiree health plan. It's a really big cost out there in the future. And keep in mind that we ought to do a better job of financial literacy, financial education in the workplace, as everybody is going to have more responsibility for their own retirement income. Thank you. Do I have, do I have time to make address one point? Yeah, I'm glad you raised the legacy. Well, you raised a number of excellent points, and there won't be time to address them all. But I would like to make a comment about the existing legacy cost, the legacy costs associated with the existing defined benefit plans. You're absolutely correct that adopting a safe retirement plan doesn't do anything about what, about the debt that already exists, uh, all by itself. The plan would be adopted prospectively. So, so why, what, what is the situation? The situation is this. Cities and counties and states have really three choices. I call it status quo, soft freeze, and hard freeze. Status quo is, we look at, the, we look at this new kind of plan, we say, not for us, we don't think that's gonna help us, we'll just keep doing what we've been doing, we'll find a way to run our defined benefit plan uh, more financially responsibly. Or maybe you're a defined benefit plan that's in good shape, and there are many in good shape that they may not feel the need. Some folks have talked about the fact that maybe they should change anyway, but so status quo would be, we're just gonna find a way to muscle through and, and overcome the, the challenges of running a defined benefit plan. That's option one. It, um, it would be very interesting to see some projections of how much that's gonna cost over the next couple of decades for cities and counties, but option one, status quo. Option two, what we call the soft freeze. That's where you say, we're only gonna make the reforms for the new employees. And that's the most common kind of reform you see, is everybody that's new goes into this new structure, everybody that's already existing will continue to, for the rest of their working careers, uh, earn benefits under the existing more expensive structure. So option two would be soft freeze. That would be where you adopt the safe retirement plan, but only for new employees. For the existing employees, they continue. Now, you will start to save money and, and, and get out of debt that way, but it will take a long time. Very similar to what the federal government did 30 years ago, this December 31st, which was close the, the civil service retirement system to new employees. If you were working on December 31, 1983 for the federal government, you were in CSRS, civil service retirement. If you came to work on January 1, 1984, you were put into the FERS, Federal Employee Retirement System. You went from having a two or, some two or more percent of final pay pension plan to a 1% of final pay of, uh, of high three average pension, uh, pension. Much, more, much more modest pension. We are now 30 years on in that soft freeze model and there are still several hundred thousand active federal workers covered by CSRS and still accruing benefits. So it takes a long time to, for that to work through. The third possibility, this is option three, what we call the hard freeze. Uh, it's a harsh phrase, we probably should come up with something that sounds better, but it means simply that every worker for your, your, work for your government entity will now start accruing their benefits henceforth in the new safe retirement plan. Everything you've already earned up to date, for those of you that are existing employees, you will be paid that money. That, that pension is earned, that pension will be honored. 
but for future, you will you'll earn your pensions like, like all the new employees as well in the new structure. That's called a hard freeze where you move over to the new structure. That is what I call stopping the bleeding. That is whatever analogy you like to use. That is the example of where you stop digging the hole. You stop accruing new liabilities in the old plan. The way to get out of debt is to stop getting farther into debt. That's always step one. So the safe retirement plan can be, and is designed to be, and hopefully will be, the first step in a series of, a very first important, very important first step in a series of steps that can lead a city or a county to getting themselves out of debt. And if they will go the, the hard freeze route, they will get out of debt much more quickly. They can go the soft freeze route. They can do a mixture in between, put everybody that's, say, under a certain age in the new plan and everybody that's above a certain age or worked a number of certain years and maybe say, well, they've worked so long in the system and it's just not messed with them. But whatever you do, it can be analyzed. Actuaries are, we'll have an actuary on the next panel, at least one. Actuaries are brilliant people. They can isolate these liabilities. You can amortize them. There's, you know, it, I'm not convinced it's hopeless to get out of these legacy liabilities, but I am convinced that the fastest way to get out of debt is to stop accumulating more debt. And in the safe retirement plan, there will be no more new debt accumulated for the state and local government. It is, it is the thing that has, that has created the resistance, in my, my impression, is the thing that has created the resistance from state and local governments to abandoning the traditional defined benefit plan is that the alternatives they've seen do not provide lifetime income. So we're trying to provide what is essentially a defined contribution plan for the employer, but that also provides lifetime income for the employee, and hopefully it'll be attractive enough that some cities and counties will start, start, start using it and we'll see good results. Great, well, we have a few minutes left over for questions from the audience. Please. Yeah, wait for the mic, please. Thank you. This is a question for Mr. Rutledge, and I will preface it by saying I am not a federal retiree, therefore I don't have a federal pension. Uh, my question is to you and Senator Hatch, why are you not gearing this towards the federal government employees? because they too are getting a pension which is paid for by the American taxpayer. So it's okay to go tell states and local government, I understand the pension, I have friends, you know, I did for a bit have a pension that I had to pull out when I worked for the state of Washington. But your employer and many elected officials in the Hill kept a huge pension so that when Social Security, when the PERS system changed, they do now get some Social Security well, why are you telling the local and state governments what to do? Why are you not looking at the federal pensions, which also mean if federal employees are retired and then come back to work, many do, they're getting a second pension. Mr. Clark made some good examples. I mean, I think this is kind of biased. It's not, it's not, annuities are risky. Who knows what's gonna be going on in the stock market and what have you. So why is this bill just not geared towards federal elected officials and federal employees um, because I don't, it's, it doesn't pass the smell test. Thank you. Thank you, and we, we have, <laughs> you make excellent points, points we've, we have thought about and discussed, so let me address it a couple of ways. There's a number of, of, of areas 
There's federal government pensions, there's state and local government pensions, there's private pensions, single employer, and what we call the multi-employer pension world, which involves companies that are um, provide pensions as a group of employers provide pensions pursuant to uh, a collective bargaining agreement in the unionized employment context. Um, there's problems in all four. And we set out to address the problem at the state and local level because in 2009 and 10 and 11, when I came to work here, it was the stock market crash took an, an enormous toll on the state and local pensions and the underfunding of those was shooting through the roof. I'm not saying there's not a need to address and look at FERS, Federal Employee Retirement System. Um, in fact, in our bill, we, we, we are going to, we've asked GPO, GD, GAO to study that and give us some recommendations, but that is Congress acting in its role as employer, not Congress acting in its role as writer of the tax code for everybody. I understand. And the, but I, what I mean is the, the employer, the employees who receive a pension from FERS, their employer is the federal government, which, inter, which in, is you, exactly. Um, those pension plans, FERS and CSRS, are right now no threat at all to, to the solvency of the United States. State and local governments, you can't say that. Uh, Multi-employer multi pension plans, you can't say that. That's actually probably as large, if not as large, if not larger, financial problem, except it's not, there's not as many people in those plans. There's no doubt that we need to look at all retirement. And, and, and the funding of Social Security and CSRS and FERS uh, does get it. Social Security is within our committee's jurisdiction, so we look at that. Uh, all, all pension plans that are governed by the Internal Revenue Code are within our jurisdiction. FERS and CSRS are out. That doesn't mean we're not looking at it, but, but we're studying that, but that is a, that's, a, that's a different part of the government. The, the, the threat that we're trying to deal with is the threat to our nation's solvency, and right now FERS and CSR, CSRS don't pose a real threat to that. But that's not to say that we shouldn't look at it. There are bills that have been introduced to take away FERS from every federal employee and leave everybody in the 401k plan of the federal government known as the Thrift Savings Plan, TSP. The concept is if, if workers in the private economy, all they have is 401ks, why should we in the federal government have something more? That's, that, 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 those bills have been introduced and, and they're going to be, you know, we analyze those, we, we study those. Senator Hatch hasn't supported those yet that doesn't mean he won't to at some point in the future. What we've got, what we're dealing with right now is the state and local uh, pension uh, problem. There are other problems to address. Um, the medical, the retiree medical is another huge problem to address. Um, I guess what the answer is, and it may not be completely satisfactory, is we have this problem, uh, we're trying to address it, and we're not going to ignore other problems, but this is the problem we're trying to address, and this is the solution we have found we think would work for this problem. And that doesn't mean we're not going to address other problems. Uh, we've got other questions there, but uh, happy to talk. The gentleman in the middle here. Thank, thank you. This is uh, directed to Mr. Rutledge. Um, I, Please speak louder. Yeah. Um, I like the, uh, the basic structure of, of the plan. I mean, I think the, the annuitization is correct. I had a couple concerns I wonder if you could address. One is 
credit risk on the insurance companies, obviously the annuity is only as good as the insurance company and or the guarantor. I noticed you didn't talk about, but there's a little box there, but there needs, you would need to have some sort of regulation or oversight on, on the insurance companies to make sure they didn't fail. I know you mentioned there's been good success record on that, but remember these are 75 year plus liabilities potentially. And the second is inflation. Um, you didn't address it. I wonder if you're seeing this as an inflation adjusted plan if not, I would question it because even relatively low rates of inflation, two, two and a half percent can destroy the value of, of a pension over 20, 30 years. And if we were to ever go back, God forbid, to five, six, seven percent, it, it, you know, essentially makes it, you know, almost valueless. Right. Um, so were you seeing this as an inflation adjusted plan? And, and if so, obviously, you'd have to be looking at real interest rates, which are even lower. So I'm wondering if maybe the cost numbers are right. The, the bill as introduced has the simplest, most plain vanilla annuity on the market um, so that people can see what is possible in terms of building a pension. Now, the, the things that have, that, and another thing I'll say, we introduced the bill, which we consider to be the beginning of the drafting process, not the end. So we want all the ideas we can get on, on what to change, if anything. Um, the things that we've heard um, the most common, the most common uh, suggestions we've already received for the annuities are, um, shouldn't they be joint and survivor? Fair point. They're not, I mean, at the moment, the bill doesn't say that. That doesn't mean it can't be added. Should they be joint and survivor? Should they have um, a death benefit? And should they have uh, COLAs? Now, in terms of making the system work in a way that the insurance industry can actually price a product and deliver on that product. That's, extra, you know, delivery, pricing is one thing. Delivering is to have what I would call, in the market right now, if you were to try to buy a, an annuity, you, could, you would probably be offered a product with no inflation adjustment or a 1% escalator, 2% escalator, 3% escalator. That's very common. Now, what's interesting about that is, because you can choose that, and then you can see how that affects the monthly amount you get, because they will be the actuarial equivalent of each other. So when, I, when you saw that chart a moment ago, if you had a pension that was 99% of, of final pay, that's a pure vanilla annuity. But if you decide you wanted a 2% escalator, for example, you can have that. Um, I mean, in the, in the insurance industry, you can have that. And we can adapt our bill to, to allow that to work here too. But what would happen? That 99% would probably come down. How much is well, it'll be completely transparent. It'll be the per for the person to decide. Is it more important for me to get 100% of my final pay and, not, and no inflation adjustment, or should I get, I'm gonna make up a number here out of thin air, so I don't, I don't, I've not run this, or is it, would I rather have 80% of final pay and know that it's gonna go up by 2% a year as long as I live? Which is more important to me? What's my calculus? Th those decisions are, will be made in a transparent way and the, one of the problems with, with state and local plans, or any defined benefit plan that provides a COLA, is they never really explain that to folks. The folks that are paying the bills, for example, the taxpayers, are never, never really told, oh, we've added a 3% COLA, isn't that nice? Well, it is nice for the recipient of the COLA, and it's good, and it's understandable, but it's also very expensive. And, and that part of it is hardly ever revealed. Uh, and, and the initial pensions are rarely reduced to adjust for the fact to make them the actuarial equivalent of each other. A pinch, um, insurance company solvency. 
we are trying as much as possible to plug into the existing state and local, to the existing state life insurance regulatory system, because frankly, it has worked so much better than the federal financial regulatory system for say banks, for example, just to take one example. One of the things they do at the state and local level is they decide there are minimum requirements as to who can be a licensed carrier. Now some will be better rated than others. When you get to the, to the bidding platform, when, when the employer each year goes out with what we would call the request for proposal to the insurance industry in their state and says, please come bid on the city, you know, you know, Des Moines, Iowa's pension plan, and we're going to bid 3,000 lives, and the bidding will start on December 1 and end on December 10, or whatever. They will, they'll make decisions at that time as to, as to the credit qualities they're going to insist upon for the carriers, for the capacity capabilities and different things like that. And they'll explain the kind of contracts they're going to insist on. Will they be straight life? Will they be 10-year uncertain? Will they have a 2% escalator? All those things. Those will be local decisions. Um, at least that's the, that's the way the bill is designed now. Those kinds of decisions, we're not, we're not insisting on any certain kind of outcome uh, with respect to those kinds of decisions. But, but um, if we could, and if, and if that's your suggestion, please send me an email. If, if you think it's appropriate for the federal government to include, oh, and among the bidding companies, none of them can be rated lower than single A. I mean, that would be something of a, I'll tell you right now, something of a, of a, of a, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? That would, be a, that would be an interesting moment because that sort of thing is purely a matter of state law right now and state and law. But we could, I mean, I think in, in terms of, you've got to remember, all of these pension plans have at the state and local level ha have a tax preference, federal tax preference. There's certainly a legitimate reason for the federal tax writing committees to take an interest in how well these federally subsidized pensions are delivered, absolutely. But we haven't gone there yet. It could, we could do it. We haven't done it. And one of the reasons we haven't done it is state regulation of life insurance industry has a phenomenal track record. Why would we second judge, second guess it? When it comes to things like delivering policies that with policyholder protection, uh, insurer solvency, and even when they go insolvent, the carrier may disappear, but the annuities don't disappear. The annuity payments don't disappear. The track record is quite remarkable, and it's a very underreported um, uh, phenomenon out there. Well, with that, we end the first session. We are out of time. I'm sorry. Um, we get ready for the second session that should begin momentarily.